like to uh, begin this evening with just a, a sense of encouragement uh, and appreciation, really. Um, it always strikes me at the end of a, a day, the first day of a, a retreat. Um, this practice can be, can be tough sometimes, it can be hard work. Yeah? Um, so we're coming out of our familiar situation and uh, putting ourselves in for what is many of us a, you know, a very different way of being. And we've taken away so many of our familiar tricks and coping strategies. And uh, we're just in this new place. So, you know, we're, we're not feeling too good. We can't suddenly phone a friend or put on the TV or get something from the fridge or, you know, distract ourselves in some other way. But we're here with it. And uh, there's not a great deal of variety in the day. So if it's there in the sitting, I'll try a bit of walking, back to the sitting, back to the walking. Um, but our opportunities to distract ourselves from what is difficult or what is hard to bear are much less. Um, but that's also the real gift of a retreat. You know, the Buddha, and he talks about dukkha, suffering, he says, this is to be understood. This is to be understood. And if we're always running and distracting and uh, moving on to other things, we don't get that chance. So a chance to look into our lives is really what a retreat offers, and that includes the places where we struggle and places where it's tough. So I'd really like to appreciate all of, all of our efforts in supporting each other uh, on this first day. Some people, I've heard it said many times actually that um, the shorter a retreat is, the more difficult it is. So some of you are saying, today, well, you know, maybe do a couple of days, but I'm not sure I could manage a week. <laughs> but actually, what many people find is that you know, on, on a longer retreat, actually, it's, it becomes it becomes easier in a way. So I can't make any promises, and it would be very rash to do so. But in some ways, it's not uncommon for the first day to be the most tough. So, yeah, so just appreciating that, appreciating that. So also it feels appropriate on the first day to, to reflect on what can feel like it's getting in our way. If our theme of the retreat is clear seeing, how can we see clearly in our lives? How can we uh, live with wisdom, let that inform how we go about in the world, how we speak and how we act, but also what can, what can get in the way or feel like it's getting in the way? What are the hindrances or obstacles to, to that sense of freedom? So that's what I'd like to explore today. But immediately just even introducing it, wanting to sort of almost question that language. Because if we see it too much of, ah, there's this thing, there's this obstacle in my way, it sets up a certain mind state. A certain way of looking at things. Oh, there's something going on in my experience that's in my way. How can I change it? How can I fix it? How can I um, somehow move it on? What tricks and techniques have we got? And sometimes we offer you little, little techniques, don't we? And you think, ah, meditation is a kind of technical, technological thing. And if only I can find the right tools that press all these buttons. Uh, but actually almost questioning that, really. So... And I think a very important aspect of the clear seeing is to see that what we consider a hindrance or an obstacle 
may not be so solid after all. And exploring the extent to which it's our relationship to it, the way we're holding on, resisting what's happening in our experience that creates that sense of solidity. So, just to to set the scene, always good to get a little bit of advice. So, this is uh, it's always very heartening to know when we're treading this path that others have gone before us, and really, this is why we have have the Buddha here is a reminder that this path has been trodden before. You know, we've we've got a map. You know, which is which is which is good. So on the evening of the Buddha's enlightenment, the young prince Siddhartha sat beneath the Bodhi tree with an unshakable resolve to be still and present until he was free. During the course of the night, Mara, the forces of delusion and confusion, assaulted him with every possible temptation and an attempt to divert him from his intention to awaken. Mara appeared in the disguise of delightful and pleasurable forms and promises reminding Siddhartha of the countless sensual moments he was sacrificing. Mara manifested in the forms of anger and hatred, inviting Siddhartha to follow the pathways of resentment and blame. Greed, lust, doubt and fear all arose during the course of that night. Siddhartha's response was not one of resistance, agitation, denial or fear, but to turn to face Mara and to simply say, I know you. Those few words embodied Siddhartha's unwavering commitment to his journey and to his refusal to follow the pathways of confusion and complexity he had trodden a thousand times before. Unable to shake Siddhartha's unfaltering commitment to liberation, the poisonous arrows of Mara fell harmlessly to the ground. So as we explore these, uh, these hindrances, that sense, I know you, Mara. I know you, Mara. Not to believe the stories that these various patterns that can pass through our mind. Yeah? So there's the Buddha on the night of his awakening, having all of these experiences. <laughs> so if we've had them today, not such a surprise. But I know you, I know you. So this is, uh, again, what we're cultivating, a sense of presence, wakefulness that sees through, doesn't believe, doesn't buy into all of these stories. When I'm uh, reflecting on these uh, hindrances, another thing uh, I always like to, to make clear is that these aren't things that are are kind of caused by meditation. These aren't things that suddenly um, are created when we start to sit and be still and be with the breathing or be with the walking. These are very much the patterns that are around in our lives. We can see these acted out in our own lives, in our work, in our family, in our friendships. We can see these acted out politically, on a global scale, in companies, corporations, organizations, communities. So these are patterns that are well worth reflecting on. And if we can work with these, it's no small thing at all. 
What would it be to really know, to really be able to work with the, the energies of desire, aversion, confusion, doubt, restlessness, boredom and drowsiness and drifting away? Working with these, learning how to respond, see through these patterns is life-transforming. Absolutely life-transforming. And the second thing, which I personally find really heartening, is that these hindrances, um, you know, they're, they're in the Buddhist scriptures. Now, this is a very different culture to 21st century globalized society with internet, phones, and, you know, 24 hour news and all the stuff, extra things we have to, uh, to deal with. Uh, very different time, very different place, but yet we see the human mind had these tendencies. And this is pointing to something, again, very, very important, that these are not personal. These are not personal. So I don't know if you've had those moments today when you think, well, what is it? Why, why is my mind wandering? What can I do? Why do I keep longing for this? Yeah? How come everybody else has worked it out? What's wrong with me? Maybe it's, you know, then we might start exploring our personal history looking for an, an answer. But how much more helpful to think these are patterns of the human mind. Patterns of the human mind. You know, I think uh, academics and philosophers, sociologists, scholars kind of debate this, the extent to which there's a kind of universal human nature and people are very aware these days of how, how conditioned we are culturally. And I'm certainly not trying to settle that this evening. But there is a sense, these, these five patterns that it can be, you know, beyond culture, beyond time. And that's already a very useful shift of perspective. Universal patterns rather than personal flaws. Universal patterns rather than personal flaws. Good. So... Let's explore, explore some of these. So the first is a, a sense of sense desire, craving, or a particular kind of wanting. A particular kind of wanting. So how might that have shown up today? Well, somebody in the, one of the groups mentioned one of the classic ones when we begin to long for the sound of the bell. You know, the sound of the bell is, that's, that's where it's at. You know, sitting here at the moment and, oh, it's uncomfortable and you know, I'm not sure I did the right thing to come. Maybe it's not the right time. If only he'd ring that bell, if only she'd ring that bell, then how lovely it would be. <sighs> and uh, we can see how we can do that. And this is, again, where this is such a useful Kirsten mentioned yesterday, it's like a, a kind of a, a research project almost. You know, this is first-hand, first-person research into how the mind works we're doing here. First-hand research. And we can see then how many times do we do that in our life? Wanting, longing. And this uh, phrase I, I really like, a projected promise. A projected promise is something that's going to really deliver it for us. And if you notice, it's never actually here when we're in that mind state. It's always just around the corner. You know, when they ring the bell, when it's lunchtime. 
when the knee stops hurting, when the mind stops wandering, when the body stops hurting. But again, we can begin to see, and this is where we say, I know you, Mara, we can begin to see that's a pattern. This is a pattern of sense desire. This is a pattern of wanting something different. And beneath, beneath it, the belief that what is here is insufficient. I'm insufficient. The moment is insufficient. Possibly guy house is insufficient. could be anything. But there's a feeling of lack. Not enough, not enough, not enough. So I need something. And if we do that on retreat, of course we do that so many times in our life. And uh, there it was said in the reading I just gave that the Buddha did that a thousand times before. And as I was reading that, I was thinking, well, it sounds like a, an underestimation to me. <laughs> you know, particularly given the, the traditional, uh, traditional belief in uh, birth, death, rebirth, birth, death, rebirth. But even in a single life. How many times have we done that? How many times have we wanted and wanted? And it's going to be so great. And sometimes as, as children, we can, you know, children can do this in a way more naively and admit it more than, than as, as adults. But I certainly remember having this sense of looking forward to something, getting something for Christmas. And actually, your memory is a tricky thing, but I'm pretty sure this is, this is a true memory. But the feeling that, you know, it's going to be so good, perhaps I'm not going to live to see that. <laughs> you know, this, I don't know what it was, Scalatrix or Commodore 64 computer. I don't know if you know these ones, they show my age. I think I got that for one Christmas. Um, but it was like, you know, it's going to be so good, so good. So much longing. And then the sense, of course, it comes and, you know, it's okay, it's nice for a bit. It's, it's, you know, computer's just a thing. <laughs> How many times have we done that with our relationships? The longing when we're when we're single, just you know, dreaming. Ah, oh, you know, what can it be like when I'm in a relationship? That's going to really do it for me. That's going to bring me a sense of completion. And of course, our culture adds to that too when we talk about our other half. You know, no, no wonder we've got that wondering. You know, I'm only half a person. Where's my other half? That's what I need. But without becoming too cynical, I hope. But we also see then when we're in a relationship, you know, does it, does it do that? It might be quite, you know, you think, ah, oh, okay, well, it's excitable now. This is nice. Yeah, but wouldn't it be nice just, you know, a few weeks, a month, months down the line when we've got over this slightly bit overexcited at the beginning and, you know, you send a text, is one going to come back and I don't know and how's it going to be? And, oh, maybe a few months' time, then we'll settle in. Then a few months' time you might be thinking, ah, oh, where's that joy and sparkle that was there at the beginning? <laughs> and again, the wanting mind can, you know, jump from one thing to the next. And, of course, you know, again... The very relationship that we long for can be one we just long, long for it to be over <laughs> and get back to back to my freedom. But we can see here again, and this is certainly not to be, um, this is not to be depressing. This is not a course of kind of to say we've got to be resigned about these things at all. But what we're seeing is it's this very pattern of one, 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 one is never ending. Is never ending. So we can see. I know you, Mara. I know you. Ah, sense desire. Sense desire. There are lots of very creative ways to work with these 
hindrances. And uh, one thing that's useful is to bring in the opposite quality. To bring in the opposite quality. So, um, one thing that I sometimes found useful here, uh, working with sense desires, just the phrase, it's already here. It's all here. In a sense, this moment is enough. It's all here. And then, of course, if the thinking analytical mind gets hold of that, well, what is the it? <laughs> Where is it? Uh, you know, I kind of get some metaphysical theories or some kind of complex ideas about what the it is, where it is, how I haven't been able to see it. But it, it's not really about that, really. It's just, but what does that, that kind of view do to the mind of craving? It's all here. It's enough. Yeah. In a sense of appreciating what's present. Appreciation. Appreciation takes us away from that sense of what's missing, what's lacking, what I need, what's elsewhere. And again, it helps us rest in what's here, what's around. <laughs> I had a, a moment of uh, an absence of mindfulness uh, a week or so ago when I was... Uh, making a little hot water bottle for my wife. And uh, managed to pour the boiling water over my thumb. And I have a little burned thumb at the moment. Um, but it's just one example, you know. I mean, how, how often am I thinking, wow, I really appreciate my thumb and the skin on my thumb and how it's, <laughs> how it's fine. But then, of course, as soon as it's, it's, you know, it's blistered and peeling and painful and things like that, I really appreciate my right thumb at the moment. <laughs> like I've never have done before. <laughs> But it's just a feeling you get about that, uh, you know, the mind state that underlies that sense of wanting, wanting or appreciating. So we can deliberately go against that. What is here? What's pleasant? What's present? What's enough? So the other side uh, of the coin of this sense desire is a sense of aversion. Aversion, and these really are um, very, very related qualities. If I want one thing, if I'm after one thing, it's very often that, therefore, I'm pushing something else away. You know, so we sometimes say that the the story that uh, sense desire tells us: if only, if only I had the right job, the right relationship, the right house, the right car, the right identity, the right set of spiritual experiences, the right status, the right whatever then everything would be fine. So if, if only is the story of, of sense desire, aversion says if only I didn't have this, if only this was gone, everything's okay in the world but this, I just need to get rid of this, ah, and we're back to the same projected promise. Yeah? Life is fine apart from this. And so we push and resist. And just kind of seeing that pattern, doing this to life, is how it's kind of sometimes described. So 
again, people spoke about it today, actually. Very interesting and thoughtful reflections people were saying in the groups about the various sounds around Gaia House and how we might respond to those at different times. You know, the sounds of the, of the birds. And people were saying that sometimes, and perhaps sometimes in the walking meditation, they were just there and just part of the background. And a sense of oh, being open to that and they come and they go. And yet at other times, perhaps in the sitting, feeling that the sounds were somehow um, a distraction or something disturbing or something that was preventing being with the breath, being calm, being still. And again, it's just an invitation to see, well, what's the difference? What is being added to the sound that makes it a distraction? Because the sound is just a sound. Yeah. Again, we can see this is that... that pattern of aversion begins to come in. Or we might feel it if somebody's you know, breathing a little bit loudly next to us. Oh, if only they were more quiet then. We can do this uh, very much to ourselves, you know, to our own hearts and minds. This sense of aversion can come in, which of course includes patterns of, you know, comes in different varieties, really judgment, boredom. But this sense of being very harsh and critical with ourselves. And you've seen how often uh, on this retreat we've mentioned this sense of kindness, patience, gentleness as we come back to the breathing. And that again is a, is a way of working with this sense. can add a lot of struggle to our meditation practice if we relate to our inner experience as if we had certain flaws that we need to destroy, overcome. Yeah? And that's, that's this aversion again coming in. So if we relate to all of the different emotional patterns that can be around for a human being, the anger, the grief, the excitement, the joy, the bliss, despair, all of these different visitors, if we start to relate to them in terms of, well, hang on, there's, there's a big list of acceptable ones and another list of unacceptable ones. And these are the ones I somehow need to, you know, this is what's wrong with me. All of these things are still around and how can I stop them arising? How can I beat them? How can I destroy them? Again, we're seeing we're adding aversion to aversion. Yeah, adding aversion. So this is why we talk so much about meeting our experience, letting it be close, being intimate, feeling emotion. One of the things that people sometimes uh, think about this practice, or perhaps fear about it or wonder about it, is that it's going to make us emotionless. We're not going to feel anything. You know. But not only is that, you know, I mean, who, who wants to be a, a piece of wood? You know, when we go through life, you know, it's kind of totally unfeeling, totally untouched by anything. I mean, it's a very unattractive vision. Um, but it's really not, not where this practice is pointing at all. So to be open to the world of emotion, to feel that, to really allow ourselves to feel very deeply. 
to feel things, allow them to calm, allow them to go. And that's, again, that different relationship to emotion, not pushing away, but feeling. The thing you can see with these, uh, these patterns, and aversion certainly is true for, is that they're like a filter. If you ever have this sense that, that there's a kind of filter around our experience, it's a little bit like we're wearing some coloured spectacles. So we say, don't we, uh, English phrase, if you, if you have rose-coloured spectacles, you know, you're looking at the world and everything's a bit over-optimistic. But I like to extend that metaphor and say we could have a whole range of different coloured spectacles through which we see the world. So we can see the world through the lens of appreciation or the lens of sense desire, the lens of aversion, all these different lenses that are around. So part of the sense of I know you, Mara, is to see the relativity of that, to see the constructed nature of those views. So aversion, if you think about it, if, you, if you've got a strong aversive state of mind around, it's just programmed to say, what's wrong? You know, well, what's wrong in this situation? <laughs> it's like, uh, you, you're kind of on the, on the outlook for it. So it's a bit like if you, you go into a nice hotel room, and you know, everything's really nice in the hotel room, but you immediately notice, ah, there's a little hole in one of the curtains, or the, uh, you know, the, the carpet's not quite right, or they've got the wrong kind of mint, or something like that. I mean, it, it's interesting. You can, you can do it even in the most luxurious situation. Um, I saw somebody once on um, one of these TV programs, like A Place in the Sun or something like that. I'm sure you, you spend your time more wisely than, than watching these things. But anyway, I, I, was, I was watching this once. But you could see somebody who was, uh, I think she, she was trying to buy a villa in Spain. It's just a wonderful place, you know, amazing thing. Five, six bedrooms, wonderful swimming pool. Nice kind of, you know, sort of big kind of barbecue area for the parties and things around that. Lovely views. And she's sort of looking at it and saying, oh, couldn't possibly live with a pool that size. You know, <laughs> the pool's far too small. You know, my friends would laugh at me. <laughs> and, and you can see, I mean, this is, again, if aversion's present, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how much luxury we're in. We're in that sense of, ah, what's wrong? What's not enough? Yeah. And the opposite of that, of course, is when, when it's not present. Those moments of, yeah, of just connecting with what's here. It's uh, extraordinary what unfolds, really. I mean, I, I always remember one time here when I, I was doing a long retreat here, um, and I had the job of taking out the, um, the waste food. So, I mean, I don't, you put all the waste food in a bucket, and then somebody comes along and, and kind of empties that food into a, into a bag and takes it outside. But I, I, I just always, always remember this sense, you know, obviously doing a lot of practice and the mindfulness and presence moves up. And it was just, this was great. You know, it was fantastic. There's waste food and you could just be there with, oh, okay, unpleasant smell, but it's all right. And just being here. And I think it's so interesting to see that, isn't it? When, you know, you, when that sense of presence is there, dealing with waste food is just delightful. <laughs> But when the mind's full of aversion, looking at this wonderful villa is a place of suffering. You know, just seeing that. 
The mind can create a hell out of heaven and a heaven out of hell. So, as well as aversion, we sometimes uh, experience a sense of uh, sleepiness and drowsiness when we're on retreat. Um, and uh, again, many of you were mentioning this today. And I personally feel that you know, with full lives, with busy lives, with all that we're doing, it really is very, very unsurprising that this is what shows up on the first day of a retreat. So much going on, and then when we begin to stop, it's like, I mean, I I feel that our lives have this momentum. It's like what we're doing, in a way, when we come here, is we're not pressing the accelerator anymore. But that momentum is still there. So it's not like we're suddenly going to arrive and it stops. But it's all, it's there. So I feel, really, particularly in the early stages of a retreat, to to be very gentle with ourselves around this sense of sleepiness, you know, to take rest when we need it, to take rest after lunch, to, to go to bed uh, early, to really look after ourselves in that way. Sleepiness or sloth and torpor as a hindrance, though, can also be something a little bit different. And this is when um, it's not so much that there's a genuine tiredness there, but it's when we're tuning out. We're tuning out of what's going on. And I think one of the reasons this can happen um, in meditation, perhaps particularly in a place like this, um, is that by the standards of our lives today, it can be a little bit boring. (laughs) And some of you, uh, I think, have mentioned this sense of, you know, it's it's a bit boring. I've been here, I've been with the breath now. Um, You know, what's next? (laughs) And uh, it's, it's really not surprising it's not surprising. I mean, this is, I think, in many ways, quite deliberately designed. This, this room, for instance, is designed to be quite neutral. Um, I mean, you may have a different experience of it to me, but to me, say, the carpet and the walls are, are very neutral. They're, they're, they're plain. I, I don't have a strong sense of, oh, I love that wall. You know, I'm going to definitely get that color when I go home. Or, you know, I can't stand the carpet. It's just, it's neutral. It's neutral, yeah? Um, and so for many of us too, not, all, not always, but for many of us too, the breath is quite a neutral object. It's not like uh, something that's really going to pull us in. Wow, it's exciting, the breath. Or something that's very, you know, kind of very hard to bear, difficult to be with. And so although on the one hand, as I mentioned, these are, are patterns that are kind of universal human patterns. This is, I suspect, also exasperated by, by our culture, um, by you know, just how stimulated we are. So many different inputs, you know, those of us, particularly those of us who live in cities. But, you know, so many different things coming at us, sights, sounds, demands. That when we can be still, when we can just be there with the breath or feet on the floor, you know, there is this sense of it's, well, it's a bit boring. So what I'd encourage us to to work with there is just seeing how much energy can follow interest. Energy can follow interest. So if we can bring some curiosity um, to what we're doing, then we might find that the energy follows. The energy follows. 
So you might have had this experience where you just sort of feel a bit listless, you feel a bit low, there's not, not a lot going on, you feel a bit tired, what should I do tonight? I'll just kind of lie on the sofa for a bit. And then maybe a friend of yours who you haven't spoken to for ages phones up out of the blue and you really want to speak to them. And wow, yeah, there's the energy. Because there's something interesting. Yeah, something interesting. So again, seeing if we can bring forth that sense of interest and curiosity into our experience. And uh, one help with that, again, is this recognition. As I mentioned, this sense of I know you, Mara, to, to recognize that boredom is a, is a state of mind. It's a, a view. It's a construction. It's not, it's not a reality. It's not a kind of fixed truth. This is boring. <laughs> this is boring. No, this is, that's how it appears when, when there's a sense of lack of interest, there's a sense of, you know, ah, I need something different or a mind that's conditioned to be overstimulated. These are the conditions for that state of boredom to arise. It's not, a, it's not an ultimate truth. And to me also it's quite inspiring really to, I don't know, it sounds a strange thing maybe to be inspired by really, but I love this sense of just, you know, having enough. Um, being a joyous simplicity, being content with little and feeling that life is really full. I mean, that for me is so much of a vision behind this this practice. So a sense of uh, working with boredom around that. It's like, okay, can I just be... What's it like to be able to sit and drink a cup of tea and feel that it's abundant? To drink in, to really be touched by a breath and feel like it's enough to just appreciate the richness of the foot on the ground. It's like then we're, you know, we're the richest people in the world <laughs> when that's around. It's like, yeah, this abundance. So again, working with boredom and seeing how many, you know, how many projects it generates if we believe it. Oh, this is boring. Okay, so I need to do that. Okay, that's all right, but I probably need to do that as well. And then, you know, before you know it, you're you're doing sort of three or four things in the evenings as well as a full-time job and trying to keep up with your family. And and then we're back to tiredness. So another of these patterns is a, a sense of restlessness, not being able to settle, being jumpy, Mind going from this to that, looking for something interesting, looking for something exciting. And again, a a way of working with that which I find helpful is just to be still, to use this intention just to be still. One of my teachers says, do the opposite of what the hindrance is telling you. So if we use this image of Mara, this kind of trickster, this this kind of trickster that's going to, you know, make us try to follow all kinds of things that really are not going to serve us. So the restless mind says, oh, you just need to keep moving. You know, okay. Your hands are there in meditation. Oh, it doesn't feel quite right. And maybe I'll put my hands there. Mm, no, it was better that way. <laughs> and then do that. And then we just, you know, one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. And we've probably had the experience of doing that when we try to sleep at night. You know, tossing and turning, tossing and turning. And it, it just feeds the restlessness. But a, a soft, but quite determined intention 
just to be still. And the restlessness can can then fade in its own time, yeah? In the sense of fading in its own time rather than I'm going to do something that's going to make it stop or go away, but it just fades in its own time when we stop we stop fueling it, we stop feeding the fuel. And the final one of these patterns is uh, uh, what's traditionally called doubt. And uh, yeah, I think I mean the word doubt has got these kind of different flavors to it, or different different nuances really so just to to be clear with this really i mean questioning is really helpful and i mean you know state the obvious so a mind that is not just believing things as kirsten said yesterday not taking things on trust but questioning investigating um looking at our assumptions it is really really helpful um and i feel um yeah, I just feel so. There's so many stories, particularly, uh, you know, in kind of places of spiritual practice, where people lose that questioning sense, and maybe it's the sense of the devotion or the faith or the sense of really finding something useful, and pe- we we want to put all our trust in something, and there are these countless stories of where where that leads to pain and difficulty, you know. So we get into a state of mind that a particular teacher is so wonderful and then we stop questioning their their behavior in any way. It's, 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 you know, it's, um can be a painful place for everybody involved. So a sense of questioning is useful. A sense of questioning is useful. Also a sense of what in the Zen tradition is called great doubt. It's a wonderful support. And so we have these questions. Who am I? Great spiritual question. Who am I? Or what is this? Stephen and Martin, a bachelor teacher, they, they practice that for years. What is this? What is this? What is this? And the, the value in these questions isn't so much in finding some kind of conceptual answer. I mean, you know, so if, who am I? If, I? if I said, you know, okay, I've worked out I'm universal consciousness. Something like that. You get some kind of answer and you think, great, I've written it down. I've got it on the wall. Put it on my bookshelf. But it doesn't really, doesn't really do us much good. <laughs> In a way, it's the, the question, living with the question, coming back to the question that keeps that alive for us. Takes us back into that place of openness. Not pinning it down, I've worked it all out. But openness. So what these, uh, in my understanding at least, anyway, I haven't uh, practiced these things so much, but these koans or this way of working in Zen is about, but this, you know, this sense of a question that, that leaves us open to the mystery of things. Doubt as a hindrance, though, I think is very, very different to these things. Doubt as a hindrance is that little voice that says, um, yeah, maybe this isn't for you. You're not quite good enough with this. You know, Maybe you should have done a different retreat. You should have gone to a different center. 
Or maybe these teachers aren't quite the right ones, I need a different teacher. Or maybe Tai Chi's for me, not sitting meditation. Or maybe I need to do yoga. Or It's just, it's the little mind that kind of, it, it's constantly uh, undermining our efforts. Yeah, we doubt ourselves, we doubt the teachings, doubt our capacity to, to awaken. And it can be very, very, uh, very, very undermining if we believe that. And two, doubt too can have a sense of indecision to it. Um, and so I think there's all, all quite often a view that underlines this. And the view that underlies it can be there's some particular situation or some particular set of circumstances which is the right one. And there are loads of other situations and circumstances which are the wrong one. Now, if we set things up like that, no wonder we get anxious about decisions. Okay, but which is the right one? <laughs> you know, because if I get it wrong, I've picked the wrong one and then I'm in trouble. And uh, I can see this in my students. I work uh, part-time in a college and... You know, you see these students thinking about university. And, you know, Shall I go to Sheffield or Manchester? Ah, <gasps> big decision, you know. And you get the sense, well, you know, there's one of them that's going to be wonderful and that's great and that will open up all the doors. And the other one, oh, no, if I get it wrong, what happens? And, of course, then they're not seeing that, you know, Sheffield has its good points and bad points and pleasures and pains and gains and losses. And so does Manchester. And so does whatever situation we find in our life. And that sense of, of knowing that, you know, can we meet whatever situation is there, can really um, undermine that sense of indecisiveness. It just runs around and, and gets so obsessed and lost in all of these decisions. But now we can be with what's here. Okay, I can work with this situation. This situation has its ups and downs that situation will have its ups and downs. And I think anything else is, is born of fantasy, isn't it? Born of fantasy. The fantasy of the perfect situation. Fantasy of the time or place when it's all smooth. Everybody likes me. <laughs> no pain in the body. Mind completely calm. Where's that? <laughs> yeah, so we go looking for it. Yeah. So again, just seeing that these, these different patterns are there can, can help us to release that. Again, going against, skillfully going against what the hindrance is telling us. So um, if you find these patterns of doubt arising in your practice, arising in your meditation, just have that sense of, of committing yourself, um, really dedicating yourself for this sitting, this sitting. If you try and say, right, I'm going to do this for life, again, that can feed the doubt. Oh, yeah, but what, what's going to happen in the future and who knows? But just to say, for this sitting, I am with this practice completely. I'm going to give myself to this practice completely. And see what happens. <coughs> that sense of wholeheartedness. What's it like when we give ourselves wholeheartedly to the breath? Not watching the breath because I'm hoping that there's going to be a pleasant experience just around the corner. How long have I got to do it for before there's lights and flashing and rapture? And, but giving ourselves to the breath. Giving ourselves to the breath. 
And what's it like to wholeheartedly give ourselves to the people in our lives, to give that attention when we're listening to somebody wholehearted to be there. We find a, a richness, a richness opens up, even in the midst of quite ordinary things. Maybe in a sense that's what I was exploring with my waste food, wholeheartedly giving myself to, to the waste food. And it's extraordinary what we discover. So those are the, the patterns, those are the so-called hindrances, if we want to use that term. But again, seeing that they're they're only hindrances, they're only obstacles, they're only solid things in our way if we're giving them that, if we're relating to them in that way. In many ways they're just like the weather, they're like winds. They're things that come and go through our experience. But if we can work with them creatively by recognizing them, knowing the hindrance, naming the hindrance, not believing its story, sometimes using skillful means to bring in the opposite energy, And we can find we can work with these patterns. And that opens up a a freedom that really supports our meditation practice and and something we can really then take also uh, into our lives. So let's just uh, sit quietly for a minute or so together and just let the words of the talk be absorbed. And just coming back to the body, coming back to the breath, and the simplicity of this moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.